Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the VentureFist podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. For the 65th episode of our podcast, I interviewed Hadley Harris, founding general partner at ENIAC Ventures, a seed stage investment firm. Hadley has an engineering degree from Penn and an MBA from Wharton. He has a proven track record as an operator, holding executive roles at startups like Bolingo and Thumb, both of which were acquired. ENIAC began investing in 2010, and what is impressive is the fact that ENIAC-backed companies get to a Series A round of funding the fastest. This stat was published from a study conducted by CB Insights. Hadley also hosts a podcast along with his co-founders called Seed to Scale, which is all about the ups and downs of building an early-stage company, securing funding, and more. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics like all about Hadley's background, including how he met his partners during his undergraduate studies at Penn, the details behind ENIAC Ventures and how they take a truly collaborative approach in terms of the makeup of the firm, a deep dive into what kind of companies they're looking to invest in, what pitch mistakes founders make over and over again, what to put on your team slide and where it should go in the pitch slide deck, how he reaches a valuation for a company, the Decacorn investment that got away from him, plus a lot more. Okay, quick side note. We are excited about the expansion of our podcast in terms of publishing a new episode every Thursday with a New York founder, executive, or investor. So make sure you don't miss any of these amazing interviews by subscribing to our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Hadley. Hadley, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Keith. Appreciate you having me on the show. So one of the things I noticed uh, as I was kind of going through your background and reading some of your blog posts is uh, you got into meditation towards the beginning of last year, and it's something that I've been contemplating. Um, you know, I, I've been reading a lot of uh, things out there. People in the tech industry have gravitated towards meditation. It's been very helpful for them. Uh, I haven't done it myself, so I'm just wondering of your experience there. Is it something that I should do, and how do I even get started? <laughs> Yeah, no, uh, it's something that's really changed my life a lot. I, I started meditating a little under two years ago, the, the beginning of last year. Um, one of our investments is a company called 10% Happier, a, a great Boston-based firm that, uh, that we've been working with now for five or six years. Um, and I think because I was working with them uh, and, uh, and Ben and Derek are really passionate about meditation, I kind of tried it for myself and I just found that it had huge impact on me. Uh, you know, I, I started last year meditating every day. And about two weeks in, I just found that uh, I felt very mentally grounded. I, I felt kind of almost a euphoria where I, I literally was 10% happier kind of throughout my day. Uh, so I guess the, the name works. Um, and then ever since, I, I try and meditate every day. You know, sometimes uh, I don't quite get the chance, but uh, pretty much every morning, if I can, uh, during the week, I'll, I'll meditate. And I find that just has a huge impact uh, on my productivity and just sense of well-being. Is it something you do like, oh, first thing in the morning, or is it something like you take a mental break throughout the day or at night? Like when's, like what's recommended? I don't even know. I think, I think everyone's different. It really depends on your day. Um, I tend to do it in the morning. My, uh, my fiance leaves very early for work, so I have usually some time by myself. I usually do it uh, right after I wake up, uh, you know, take 10 minutes, meditate, and then I eat breakfast and then go on my day. Uh, and it's very easy to tell yourself that, oh, I'm so busy today, I got to get to the office. But the reality is, you know, you spend 10 minutes, uh, you know, doing lots of things that are, have very little value. So uh, whenever I, I uh, with very few exceptions, I, I really try and kind of grab at least that minute. Even sometimes it could be five minutes, it could be three minutes. 
but even just something I find really helps kind of set me up for the day. And like you said, it's not a huge time commitment. It's not like you're going for you know an hour and a half where you got to chew that out of, out of your day. Ten minutes, five minutes. That's something I need to look into. Yeah, yeah. You don't need to be a monk and spend you know two weeks uh, silent <laughs> meditating. You can get a lot of value out of a pretty short meditation. <laughs> well, let's go back into your background. So, where did you grow up, and what did your parents do for work? Yeah, I, I grew up in downtown Boston. Uh, my parents, uh, my dad was a, uh, an, a a tech executive and an entrepreneur. Uh, and my mom was an advertising executive, so both uh, relatively successful, uh, really was great for me, kind of being able to learn from them, kind of watching them throughout their careers. Um, and then uh, I had a lot of impact from my little brother who has Down syndrome, so kind of seeing him grow up and make the best of his abilities is really impactful uh, for me in kind of uh, trying to utilize, you know, the skills that I have to be uh, to, to the most of my own abilities. So, uh, you know, my, my immediate family very close with and, and had a big impact on me. Absolutely. And then what, what brought you to study engineering at Penn? Uh, I always uh, loved science and math. Uh, I was always really shitty at uh, reading and, and things that had to do with that. So I think uh, my own skill set is very geared towards technical stuff. Um, I wanted to study engineering. Uh, Penn was my first choice. Wanted to get out in New England, but not not be too far. So ended up uh, studying engineering at Penn. Uh, still, a lot of my best friends uh, I met when I was there. And coincidentally, we'll get to this later. But my three uh, partners at ENIAC were all uh, in my class uh, as engineering students, and we all graduated back in '99. And then, like, this, I was, well, we'll talk about this a little bit later. But uh, did did all of you meet like freshman year, or was it just through you know undergrad? You eventually all came together and began yeah. To I think it was freshman and sophomore year. By the end of sophomore year, I think we all knew each other. Um, we had a couple of different combinations that were very close, but all four of us at least knew each other. And then when we came back together, uh, you know, 10 years later, uh, it, it made, made sense and it, it was a good fit. So what did you do straight out of undergrad? So I worked uh, out of undergrad as a, a developer for two years and then managing engineering teams, uh, mostly for a software firm called Pega. Um, and that was a great experience, very focused on kind of the technical building of, of, the, of, uh, of our product. Um, and then after four years, decided that I wanted to marry that uh, technical experience, more kind of broad-based business. So I went back to uh, get my MBA at Wharton, um, which was, uh, you know, great experience. Again, I, I'd never really dealt with any kind of aspects of business. I've been very focused on, on the pure technology. Um, and then uh, didn't really know what I wanted to do afterwards. I, I, I have to admit, I, I was kind of lost. I had never lived abroad, and I, I got a offer to join a corporate strategy at Samsung in Seoul, Korea. Uh, so uh, I also had offers from Microsoft and Google, and probably would have done better financially if I'd taken Google. But uh, <laughs> uh, moved to Korea and had an awesome experience. Uh, ended up not liking the job that much, but actually living in Korea, such a different country, uh, was really interesting to me. And then it was there actually, this is uh, 2006, uh, early 2007, they already had 4G networks there. So I was seeing how people were using these big dumb phones and that really had an impact on me and basically uh, quit my job and, and moved back to the US knowing that I wanted to do something in this kind of burgeoning uh, mobile ecosystem. Uh, and it was right around then that the, the iPhone got announced. So this is kind of during, during that time frame. Uh, so moved back to the US, kind of figuring out what I was gonna do next. Uh, was bouncing around uh, Boston and New York talking to folks and ended up linking up with uh, a partner at Charles River Ventures named Izar Armini, who kind of took me in and, and uh, uh, helped them with some projects. And that was really impactful. And then they had made a seed investment in a company called Blingo. And I ended up uh, working with them kind of 
at first kind of on the behalf of CRV, but then as a contractor and then eventually jumping on and joining the, the early team there uh, and then spent the next four years uh, building that out. And, and that was just, you know, a fantastic experience going from a few employees to about 150 employees and uh, was very involved with fundraising. We raised a little under 60 million. So got to be on the other side of the table and, and seeing uh, working with, with VCs and pitching them and, and frankly seeing some pretty bad behavior. And that's something that's kind of stuck with me to, uh, to my role now. And Flingo was a pioneer in mobile speech recognition. Like I, I remember them as like the alternative to Siri. It was, you know, Siri for Android. Yeah, that's right. Uh, I think uh, towards the end, we had at least uh, 20 million active users, almost all on Android. That was the platform that worked best for us. And we were working uh, closely with a lot of handset manufacturers and, and, uh, and app developers, uh, mostly on the Android side. And then, uh, after a lot of back and forth with one of our major competitors, Nuance, that, that powers theory, uh, they ended up acquiring us. Great. And then uh, from there, you moved to New York and worked at a startup then? Yeah. So ended up uh, wanting to move back to New York. I, I'd been living in New York prior to, to graduate school uh, and then joined another early company called Thumb that was a uh, social real-time crowdsourcing platform uh, that had been funded by uh, DFJ, uh, General Catalyst, and a couple other folks. Uh, we ended up, uh, I joined as the kind of chief business officer, CMO type role. And about 18 months later, we got acquired. Uh, and that again was great experience working with a small team, uh, seeing that kind of through acquisition. Um, as with Flingo, you know, it's not all up and to the right. Uh, you know, there are hard times in, in both cases. There were times when we weren't sure we we're going to be able to raise that next round and we had to do, make layoffs and we had to, you know, squeeze on cash. And, and again, that was something that kind of now working with, entrepreneurs has really stuck with me that, you know, it's in those hard times that, that the people around the table, I think, show the real true colors. And what led you down the path to, to, to becoming an investor? Yeah, it's something that I've been thinking about for a while. So even as far back as when I moved back from Korea, uh, my, my now partner, Vic Singh, and I were talking about eventually starting a fund. He was working at RE, and I'd had my experience at CRV. And, and one of our kind of insights was that we didn't want to join a big firm and kind of work our way up the ladder that, you know, these, uh, these old fogies at the top didn't want to kind of share the pie with us. So why not kind of do our own thing? So uh, as early as 2008, we were kind of starting to talk about it. We pulled in uh, Tim and, and Nahal and raised a really small fund that we started investing in 2010. While we were still kind of doing our own things as entrepreneurs, and, and they have kind of similar backgrounds to me, uh, uh, especially founding companies. Um, so our first fund was tiny, it was 1.6 million. It was our own savings and friends and family. A lot of our, our, our buddies from Penn that, that uh, you know, trusted us enough to give us some of their money. Um, and, you know, in a lot of ways, we were like angels. Uh, you know, you see a lot of entrepreneurs investing. Uh, I had no money and had uh, still uh, a lot of uh, student debt. So it didn't have money to invest in angels. So it raised this, this small fund. But it was a typical GP LP structure on the back end. So it allowed us to you know, it was almost an MVP that allowed us to see if we wanted to work together, whether we wanted to do this long term, but also start building a track record. And then basically built that over time uh, and then just started investing a little under a year ago out, out of our fourth fund, uh, which is $100 million. And, uh, and that whole time has been consistent in a lot of ways. We've always focused on seed. Uh, what, what is seed has changed a lot uh, during that time. And then how we play in it has changed a lot. So, so these days we, we focus on leading seed rounds. Uh, we average investment tends to be between, you know, one and one and a half million. Uh, we actually cap the fund in a hundred million so that we never have to take more than half the round. And that allows us to syndicate with other players, either kind of large seed funds like ourselves, where we can 
split the round or, or smaller funds that can kind of add a lot of value. So the, as far as the, the firm itself, I, I love how it was like almost like a grassroots, right? You called your first fund like an MVP, right? And you eventually each round grew, but it wasn't like you all of a sudden you just went from a $1 million you know, fund to a $100 million fund. There was a gradual you know, movement towards that level of, a, of a size of a fund. But initially when you started ENIAC, it was, wasn't it focused on mobile initially? Yeah, so that's right. So uh, through my experience at Blingo and then also my partners had been working in mobile first companies. When we started investing in 2010, we were 100% focused on mobile. And it's really easy to forget. But back then, mobile was actually kind of similar as people see like ARVR now. It was this thing that like they had been promised of this mobile revolution for literally 15, 20 years, and it never happened. And actually, VCs were very bearish on mobile at that time. Now, of course, that started to flip. We were fortunate to kind of be very deep in that space. So for about the first half of our existence, I'd say uh, 2010 through about 2015, we focused 100% on, on mobile. And that ended up being a lot of developer tools on the B2B side, uh, like uh, Localytics and Bungle and Particle, and then app-based businesses on the consumer side, um, like Box and Hinge. Uh, and then over time, it started making less sense. Uh, the mobile ecosystem changed a lot uh, in terms of the consumer side got really difficult in terms of growth channels, and it just became more of an artificial boundary. So uh, about four years ago, we stopped kind of focusing uh, alone on mobile, and we really became generalists. Um, that said, because of our engineering background and where our, our interests lie, we tend to focus on more technically driven businesses, um, but across kind of a broad spectrum otherwise. So are there particular uh, segments of technology, kind of like the investment thesis that are more interesting than, than others? Yeah, yeah. And that, you know, changes a lot. Uh, over the last, I would say, 18 to 24 months, we've, I could kind of split it in three parts. Uh, one, we've done a good amount of what people would call kind of frontier or hard tech. So uh, autonomy, uh, robotics. Uh, probably about a third of, of our investments have kind of broadly been in that space. There's, a, there's kind of a big bulk that I'd say another 40% that I'd, I'd call AI-first SaaS. Uh, so this is kind of deep AI, usually pretty technical teams. They're utilizing generally some best-of-breed uh, uh, AI techniques and, and algorithms, but trying to build some sort of proprietary data set. And those could be either verticalized or horizontal, and a lot of times the horizontal can look more like a developer tool. So one thing I've been working a lot especially last year is uh, on kind of smart developer tools. And then you have the last kind of call it 30% that's just opportunistic. So there's some consumer in there, there's some marketplace, there's some FinTech. And, you know, as a seed investor, it's, it's all about the team. And sometimes even if it's a little bit outside of your core uh, thesis, you need a great team that's just really passionate and really understands the market they're going after. And, and in those cases, we're happy to jump in and work with them. So, and then how do you qualify a team? Like, that's something that most VCs say, it's, you know, it's about the team. But how do you actually, like, decide that this is the team that you want to, you know, eventually in, invest in? Yeah. Um, you know, there's not a silver bullet on that. I, I think every, every situation is different. Uh, and I think you have to be careful of kind of having rules. Uh, that said, we tend to look for teams that are well-rounded and diverse across a, a number of different spectrums. Um, and then uh, teams that just are very knowledgeable about whatever that space they're going after. And that could be kind of an existing market that they know very well and they're trying to disrupt, or it could be a brand new market that they, for whatever reason, based on their backgrounds and knowledge, have a really kind of strong understanding of that market. So it's that kind of, we call founder market fit, that I think tends to be the most important. 
And then, um, but being broad enough that they have all the kind of necessary parts to build that, uh, we like good balance between kind of the technical aspects, the product aspects, and then the business aspects. Um, and then uh, one other thing we like is usually we like multiple co-founders. So we have done some kind of single co-founder investments in the last few years, but it's, it's definitely relatively rare. We find that having that, that co-founder that you can lean on that's kind of your equal is, is very important. And then where possible, we really like the co-founders to have worked together before, at least have some sort of shared history. This uh, kind of notion of uh, two people meeting at a, a, you know, some sort of hacker hackathon and then building a company right away. Yeah. I, I haven't seen that work very often. I'm sure there's, there's always exceptions to the rule. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you're kind of getting married. You know, this, we, we have companies uh, that we invested in 2010, you know, that... Uh, you know, may IPO in two years and that's going to be, you know, 11, 12 years. So, you know, um, you know, this is a long-term relationship. I think that's actually about as long, if not longer than the average marriage in the U S. So, you know, you really, you, you wouldn't just kind of meet someone at a, a bar and get married. So uh, I don't think it's a good idea for entrepreneurs either. So here's a fun statistic. Uh, CB insights conducted a study and they found that ENIAC backed companies get to series a fastest. So why, why do you think that is the case? Um, well, you know, as I was talking about, the feedback loops in venture are just so long, especially for seed stage. You know, successful companies are often going to be, you know, eight, nine, ten years before you actually know the end result. Uh, and because of that, we use the Series A as kind of a KPI. You know, certainly one of our companies raising is Series A is, is no reason to kind of uh, – claim victory, but it is kind of something that happens generally in kind of the one to two year frame where we can know that, that we're operating uh, in, in a good way and that the entrepreneurs are, are, are having some level of success. So we use that kind of graduation rate as, a, uh, as kind of an internal early KPI. And I think maybe because of that, it helps kind of drive that, that stat. Our, our stats have actually gotten quite a bit better since that came out. So I'd love them to to run that study again and see where we stand. But uh, I, I'm not sure. We've actually asked them a couple of times, but haven't seen it yet. <laughs> well, that's amazing. Uh, and the other thing that I thought was interesting about your firm is it's, uh, it is a, a different approach. It's very collaborative team. It's not like each partner is chasing your own deal flow. And this is, this was my you know, generated lead and this is my portfolio. Like it's a shared pool of investment opportunities from what I, what I found. Yeah, no, that, that's absolutely right. Uh, so I think, Partially because we all are kind of uh, founding partners, and we don't have people coming into the firm at different times, and we've known each other now for you know 20 years. That's allowed us to have much more of a collaborative approach. So it's a little bit of the benchmark approach, but I think we take it even further. Um, so we don't have any attribution between us in terms of kind of economics, but also we actually don't even kind of share publicly who uh, who sourced a certain firm uh, company and then who kind of drove the diligence and then who joined the board afterwards. And often those could be different people. Uh, even uh, a few months ago, there was a, a company that I happened to source uh, that, uh, that Nahal joined the board because he was just a better fit uh, for that company. So, you know, we think that collaborative approach just puts us in a better position to each work with each of our companies. We, we had the saying, you kind of get four for the price of one uh, when we lead your seed round. Um, so each of us will tend to kind of jump in and work with the company if it's an area that we have kind of particular expertise in. And how'd you come up with the name of the firm? So the ENIAC is uh, uh, arguably the first computer ever. There, there is, you can probably find a lot of blogs where people argue about that, but uh, it was developed at, at Penn Engineering where we all went to school uh, and uh, launched in 1946 uh, to help 
uh, calculate uh, uh, patterns of, of ballistic missiles for, for the U.S. government. Um, and it was actually uh, about four times the size of uh, our New York office that I'm sitting in now. Uh, it's, uh, and they've <laughs> broken it down to this part of the University of Pennsylvania now, there's part of the Computer Museum in Palo Alto, and there's part of the Smithsonian. Uh, but yeah, it was massive and, and had uh, less uh, computing power than my, uh, my Fitbit. Well, that's another fun fact. I didn't know the first computer <laughs> arguably was, was actually created at Penn. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah, no, it's pretty cool. Um, yeah, some people say the Turing machine, but it, it wasn't electrical. So it was the, this was the first electrical programmable computer. So what's the best way to get on, on your radar if I'm interested in uh, talking to you about a potential opportunity? Yeah, you know, the best way I always think is through shared contacts. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, uh, I think uh, if you can find someone they both know, I think LinkedIn's really good for that and uh, share with them what you're doing and then get a, a warm intro. I, I think for any investor, that's the best way to, to uh, connect. I do read all the stuff that comes in inbound. I, I do get, and I think a lot of investors get a lot of kind of cold inbound emails and it's tough to kind of go through and spend a lot of time on each of them. Uh, uh, a lot of the stuff comes in is kind of well outside of what we do. So it is kind of hard to keep up. Um, so I, I think if possible, really try and mine your network, find someone that you both know, and then convince them that you're worthwhile of kind of making it an intro. I, I think that's where you're going to have by far the best hit rate. And then once, you know, uh, that intro is made and it's like, okay, let's set up a first meeting. Like, what are you trying to get out of that first meeting? Like, what should a, an entrepreneur be prepared to share? Yeah, um, I, my, my personal style, style is I like to really kind of dig into the details of the technology and the product. I, I just find that really interesting. And maybe that's partly, partly from my uh, engineering background. Um, and I find that actually uh, them trying to communicate the complexities of their business and their technology to me is, actually, is a really good way for me to understand kind of them as an entrepreneur, because that's usually a very difficult thing to do. So, you know, especially with some of our kind of hard tech investments uh, or, or, or teams, you know, I'm a, a bachelor of engineering and they're a PhD. So like, can they kind of, if they can't dumb it down to my level, how are they going to sell it to a customer? Um, so, so I like to spend a lot of time with that and kind of digging through the, the kind of nuts and bolts of, uh, the product, but then their go to market and technology. And then it's really trying to get a feel for the team. You know, as, as I mentioned, that's by far the most important thing, especially at the seed stage, uh, understanding, uh, each of their backgrounds and, and, you know, uh, why they are such a good fit for this, this vision that they have. And then also I, I always pay attention a lot to kind of the interactions between the founders. As, as I said, I think that's a really kind of underrated aspect of, of early teams and kind of seeing how they interact and, and uh, what kind of bond they have as a team. I, I think it's actually really important. And are there like common mistakes that you've seen entrepreneurs make that, you know, while they're having this first meeting or maybe they're, you know, pitching to a, a broader set of, of, you know, your partners, like what are those typical pitch mistakes that you see people make over and over? Yeah, you know, um, interestingly, the, the, the really good pitches tend to look very similar. And then the ones that are, are not good can kind of be bad in, in almost infinite ways in some ways. I think there's a Tolstoy uh, quote about families that's kind of similar. But um, uh, a couple of common mistakes I see is I, I really, especially for the seed stage, I think you want to make it a conversation. I think it's good to send over a deck and then you can reference slides if you want visuals. But having a conversation that allows the, the investor to kind of uh, drive to what's important to them, I think is much better uh, than reading slides and it, it, it can get kind of boring and then you end up not being able to kind of focus on the areas that are important to you. And I think it's a lot less efficient. Um, just generally not knowing 
your stuff. Uh, some of the worst pitches I can I can remember were ones where they were going after a certain space. Uh, you know, say it was they're selling to hotels and just making this stuff. But and it's like, okay, well, how many hotels of that size are there in the U.S.? And they're like, I don't know. It's like, well, how do you not know that? You know, you really need to be intimate with all the details of what you're trying to do. Um, and 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 the flip side, be honest with what you know and what you don't know. Um, one attribute I see of really good pitches, and this almost always is the case with successful second time and third time entrepreneurs that we work with, is you ask them a question and they'll say, I don't know, because you know that's kind of out in the future, but here's our thesis and here's what we're gonna test. And based on that, we'll know whether this is true or not, um, versus kind of just being overly uh, um, sure of some sort of future state of the world that, that actually is really hard to predict. All right, so you're looking to the fact that maybe it is a true statement that the uh, entrepreneur doesn't know, but they've already thought through that as a potential obstacle and how they might overcome it. That's right. I mean, with this, this business is hard and predicting the future is extremely hard. And, and I think being uh, real with yourself about what you know, and, and more importantly, what you think might be true, and then how you test that hypothesis. Uh, so you recently wrote a blog post that talked about, um, you know, the slide deck. And uh, you, had a, you had a strong opinion on kind of the order, especially one particular slide, <laughs> yeah. that being the team slide, which it, it is kind of just bizarre that, um, you know, you, you know, when you talk to almost any VC and they're like the team, the team, the team, right. And then, you know, product market, but so share the details of your thoughts on where, you know, the slide deck and, and where the team slide should go. Yeah. I, I realized at one point that when someone sends me a, uh, a slide deck, I immediately scroll to the team slide, which often is like, you know, 20 deep, which doesn't make any sense. Like you said, it's the most important slide. Why not put it up? Up front, and then, uh, and then, amazingly, often there's very little information. I'll have like some pictures, and I'll have kind of like a, a three-word description. It'll be like the coder, the the uh, the, the marketing ninja, <laughs> growth like, hacker, yeah, yeah, growth hacker. That doesn't tell me anything about your right. background. So I think my my point was put it up front, and then just add as much detail as you can. Don't try and kind of uh, hide anything. You know, put uh, details around where uh, the team worked before, what they did there. I think more is, is better. I, I understand a lot of like entrepreneurs want to have like an aesthetically clean deck and, and I, I appreciate that they want to have, you know, a good looking feel to it, but, I, but I'd much rather have kind of way too much copy on there and be able to extract the information than have a beautiful, you know, deck with three smiling faces. <laughs> Makes sense. Now, once you get to the point where you're interested in the company and, uh, you know, you're thinking of putting a, a term sheet together, how should a, a, an entrepreneur think about valuation, especially at the seed stage? Like how do they actually, you know, how do you come to terms on the proper valuation for a company? Yeah, no, it's, it's a great question. I mean, you're, you're kind of optimizing for three different things. Uh, one is taking in the amount of money you think you need to get to that next stage. The second is minimizing your dilution and certainly uh, having been in their shoes, you know, I understand you don't want to dilute yourself too much, especially at the early stages. And the last is setting yourself up for the series A. And you really need to run kind of a, an optimization of all three of those things. Uh, one common mistake we see, especially in the Valley, a little less so outside, is just uh, entrepreneurs kind of gunning way too high with their valuation. They start trying to raise uh, seed rounds. You see this a lot out of YC. And, you know, at a, at a 20 million cap or something like that, well, you know, that doesn't leave you a lot of room for your Series A. And in a series, you know, you, you're going to get a, a situation where you don't have a lot of room to grow there. And you definitely want to be able to have terms that allow everyone to get involved and kind of grow in terms of valuation over each stage. So 
I, you know, I think you want to, you want to negotiate hard and, and find, um, uh, evaluation that, that works for you and that you feel, you know, truly values your company. Um, but you also want to be in a position where you're kind of not outside the, the norm in terms of valuation because that can hurt you down the road. Mm-hmm. So fun question that I like to ask investors is the anti-portfolio. So Bessemer publishes their anti-portfolio on their website, which I always find interesting. So I, I, I noticed a, a tweet that had surfaced uh, from one of your partners that dug up a, uh, an email from uh, one of your passes. So which one was that? Yeah, so when we were very first started back in 2010, uh, I, I met with the Pinterest guys with, with Ben and uh, ended up passing. And it, it was actually a hard one because I, I, I really liked what, I liked him a lot. I mean, granted, it was just a call and what he was doing, it was super early, um, but it, it wasn't at all mobile. And, and as we talked about before, we we're really trying to focus on, on mobile first companies. And I think I spent 20 minutes trying to convince him that he should have more of a mobile, mobile focus. and. Uh, thankfully for him, uh, he did not uh, listen to me because I think that <laughs> business done very well and it's partially done well by kind of sticking to like more of a desktop focus, especially in the, the early days. Um, so, you know, that it's always painful when you when you pass on uh, probably a Decacon at this point. Um, on the flip side, when you're starting a new venture firm, you really need to focus because otherwise you're just going to get lost in the noise. And for us, that first three, four years, it was that mobile first focus and that that it matched our background and entrepreneurs knew that we knew their ecosystem and we could help them with all like the details that were only true of mobile companies. So um, I can't kick myself too much for that, but you know, it doesn't make it any easier. Yeah. It's, it's tough to see it now, but you had a very, um, you know, a, a co- compelling reason why you passed. It wasn't like you were just like, eh, pass. Yeah, at least, at least I rationalize <laughs> it to myself. <laughs> <laughs> I hope you sleep at night. Uh, so uh, you're obviously very busy. Are, any productivity hacks that um, you would recommend to people on how to keep up with the day-to-day stuff? Yeah, I mean, one of the hardest parts of being a venture investor is keeping up with your inbox. I, I run a zero inbox uh, where I go kind of oldest to newest. Uh, that works for me. And I, you know, I think none of my partners do that. And I honestly don't know how they sleep at night because I would just be terrified of missing something. So I, I get to everything. Sometimes the flip side is that can take me a few more days later, but at least that lets me know that I'll, you know, I'm not going to miss anything and they're not going to fall through the cracks. So I'm kind of constantly nipping at the, uh, the oldest, uh, part of my, my inbox. Uh, the only, uh, hole in that, in that, uh, strategy is that sometimes entrepreneurs will keep uh, replying to their own email to kind of bump it to the top. And then that just keeps it from getting to the bottom, uh, <laughs> which is unfortunate. But besides that, it, it seems to work pretty well. Right, that's an interesting hack for you now. So if you're an entrepreneur, just wait. Cause it'll just wait. Yeah, yeah, you're not, you're not replying. <laughs> <laughs> okay. What do you like to do outside of work? Um, well, I, I mentioned kind of meditation. I, I try and jog every day or, or play tennis with my partner in the hall, which I, who I recently beat last week. So a little shout out to that. Nice. Um, but, um, uh, my, my fiance and I are big foodies and travel buffs. So, uh, we live in uh, Manhattan and, uh, we get out to a lot of restaurants and we love traveling the world and trying different foods. That's probably the, the, uh, the most enjoyable thing for me. That's awesome. Well, I do want to, uh, thank you for being a po- uh, guest on my podcast, but I do want to give a shout out to the ENIAC podcast which is called uh, Seed the Scale, right? That's right. Yeah, thanks for the uh, shout out, Keith. Uh, yeah, we just started a podcast this past summer. I think there's 10 episodes up. Um, and it's, it's all about uh, 
uh, different attributes of growing and, and scaling a company. So a lot of uh, great entrepreneurs and investors and uh, industry leaders on there. So uh, check it out. It's on all the different podcast platforms, uh, Seed to Scale. I highly recommend it. De- definitely lots of great guests and lots of useful information in there. So definitely check it out. All right, Hadley. Well, thanks so much for taking the time and for sharing all your, your thoughts here. Yeah, thanks for having me on the show. Really appreciate it. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.